Father, I want to thank you so much for your love, for giving us minds, for calling us to action, and giving us a plan. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd left off talking about heaven's sanctuary. The disciples are told, you don't leave Jerusalem. You don't go to work until the Holy Spirit comes. The point we're trying to establish is very simple. The entire plan of salvation was planned by God in the beginning. The postmodern movement didn't surprise God. He had a plan that included the last day generation. And he says, you don't work unless Jesus is running the show. Amen. Everybody with me? Amen. So the plan of salvation has almost this much to do with us. That's double zero. One zero. Has almost nothing to do with us. God knows what he's doing and he's running the show. Look at this. John 3, verse 3, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Jesus answered, said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is what? The Greek word is anathen. It sounds like the pain medication. <laughs> That's how you can remember it. Anathen. What does it mean? Literally in the Greek, it doesn't say born again. It says born from above. Amen. What direction does salvation come from? Above. above. The whole plan is run from the sanctuary. Jesus runs it. He developed the plan. He knew what he was doing, and he's not surprised by the postmodern movement. Everybody with me so far? Amen. Unless he is born from above, he can't see the kingdom of God. Here's the lesson. It is so simple. So simple. I mean, we've gotten so bogged down in surveys and studies and philosophy that we missed the point. The lesson is simple. Nothing can happen without Jesus running the show. Everybody with me? It's simple, isn't it? That's not rocket science. He's in charge. He runs the show. Does he make mistakes? No. Doesn't make, do we make mistakes? Yes. Yeah, we sure do. We need to fit into God's plan instead of making one up ourselves. We're very busy trying to make one up ourselves. We're always trying to re-guess what we've been told to do. Again, it's important you speak language that people understand when you speak to people. Right? There's a logical way to present our truths. But don't make up your own plan and don't re-guess God's. God has a plan. We wouldn't have gotten caught up in this whole postmodern thing and a lot of the foolishness, if I can speak boldly, a lot of the foolishness that's going on is because we think we have to rewrite God's plan. And there is foolishness going on in the name of trying something different. God didn't call us to try something different. He does call us to be relevant. I don't want to make this so black and white that you miss the point. We have to speak a language people understand, but God didn't invite us to reinvent the plan that He designed Himself. Everybody with me? What is God's plan? This is so simple. It's like falling off a log. If you've ever been in some of my classes before, you will have seen some of what I'm about to show you. This is powerful stuff. Jesus has an approach for the disappointed and despondent mind. That's what we've discovered about the postmoderns. We, we, we've discovered that society gave up on God and clung to reason, and now we have a generation that's given up on reason. Right? Now they're despondent. They don't think life means anything. Fortunately, we have a story in which Jesus shows us how to, how to relate to somebody who's despondent and doesn't see meaning in things. And it's found in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter, let's see if that comes up. The road to Emmaus. What do we have on the road to Emmaus? We've got two guys who are utterly despondent. They don't know where to turn. The hope they had has vanished. 
It's the postmodern mind. Everything that happens in this world, particularly in the last days, is prefigured somewhere in the Bible. Listen to this. Luke 24, 13. Behold, two of them went that day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. They talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So here we have two guys that are disappointed, and they're reasoning. Is their reasoning bringing them comfort, yes or no? No, it's not. Human reason is failing them. Kind of like the postmodern movement, human reason is failing us. There is an analogy in this story. It's not perfect, but there is one. As a matter of fact, as they're busy reasoning, Jesus shows up. Do they recognize him? No. no, he's standing right there and they don't recognize him. Is that analogous for the postmodern movement? Sure it is. Sure it is. Their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said to them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? Jesus asked them to explain their thoughts. You want an approach for the postmodern mind? Have people explain their philosophy. Do it kindly and gently. Ask questions. Well, what about this? What about that? How would you explain this? And what do you think of that? Eventually, their reason runs out. Right? Ravi Zacharias. Brilliant mind. I wish the guy was an Adventist. I really do. I was sitting down with someone who said, there is no absolute right and wrong. See, Ravi, this guy said, we have to understand in this world, we don't deal with either or. Either this is true or that is true. In today's world, it's and and both. Everything's true. So Ravi says to him, same way Jesus, just ask questions. So are you saying then that either I'm right about this or you are? I mean, either, either we're dealing with it's an and both world or we're dealing with an either or world. And the guy says, oh, either or has a way of kind of coming back to the surface, doesn't it? Ask people questions and they get to the end of their reason very quickly. Notice what Jesus does. He just asks them, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And he asks questions. And they tell the story, we thought Jesus was Messiah. He's been crucified. They explain how puzzled they are. And how does Jesus relate to them in verse 27? Here's people that are despondent and confused. And Jesus is standing beside them in the flesh, in his resurrection body. He could have suddenly said, here I am. It's not his method. It's not what he did. I mean, I'd be tempted if, if I were in those shoes, I'd, in Jesus' shoes. Hey, here I am. You're wrong. I did rise from the dead. It's not what he does. He paints a path for us. He shows us the way. Verse 27, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is there in flesh. And what does he do? He gives those despondent people a Bible study. It doesn't change. I thought you can try all the methods you want. And I've been asking people that are trying all the so-called new methods. That's great. How's it working? You know, you've been trying it for 20 years now. If it works better and wins more people, I'm on board. But where's the fruit? I have never seen anything work like preaching the Word. Amen. It doesn't change. Know, they poo-poo it. They say, oh, if you preach the Bible, you won't baptize anybody under 55. I read that in an article the other day. And that makes good sense in a survey. It's not the truth in an evangelistic campaign at all. I mean, it's just, it's just, it doesn't matter. You preach the word. People have asked me, who's your target audience, Sean? You know, when I was younger, they assumed you're going to be for youth. And I've always resisted any classification. Are you for youth? Are you for middle-aged people? No. 
when we do evangelism, we're not targeting any demographic other than sinners. Amen. And I have discovered that sinners come in every age category, every race, creed, faith, belief. I mean, they, they're everywhere. <laughs> All right. Well, they are, aren't they? Yeah, amen. Isn't it amazing? You know, you don't have to teach kids to sin either. My little sweet two-year-old, did you write on the sofa? Nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How'd you get that marker in your hand? Born with a sinful nature. Paul's approach, Acts 14, this is critical. I want to show you some people say, oh, but Jesus was dealing with people of his own culture. All right, let's look at somebody who's dealing with somebody from another culture. Paul and Barnabas, Acts 14, one of my favorite stories. They go to Lystra, different culture. So different, in fact, they heal a man. Hmm. It's born, this, give me this here. They're out in the community healing, verses 8 through 10. Okay? They're healing, this guy's healed, stands up on his feet, he leaps and walks, verse 10. And then in verse 11, a disaster happens. Paul came to preach Jesus, somebody's healed, and what happens? All of a sudden, the whole village disappears. They're gone. Paul is left standing next to Barnabas. Where'd they go? I don't know. I've often said this story reminds me of people on the beach just before a tidal wave, because all the water sucks out into the middle of the ocean just before the big wave comes, and people are down on the beach. Where'd all the water go? <laughs> Bad spot to be standing, waiting for the water. And Paul and Barnabas, everybody disappears. Where'd they all go? And then they come around the corner, and it's bad. It's bad. Why? Because they ran out of town to have a conference with the priest of Zeus. You want to talk about a different culture? They're preaching in a different culture. And what do they do? They have a quick consultation. These guys must be gods. And so they grab a poor cow and some flowers, and they're coming back to have a sacrifice to Paul. What a disaster of an evangelistic meeting. <laughs> That's a disaster. Right? It's horrible. Verse 14, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they tore their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sir, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passion with you. There, there's the number one secret to soul winning. I said it earlier. Unless you're a person just like them, you can't win anybody. Amen. You can't win them. Sick and tired of religious know-it-alls this world. We also are men of like passions with you and preach to you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God. Now pay attention. Which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Paul's in a funny culture. They don't understand anything. They run out of town. It's a disaster. They're going to do a, offer a sacrifice to Paul. And what does he preach? The three angels' message. There it is. Oh, let me back up. I almost gave away my hand. He preaches the same language of Revelation 14. Worship Him that made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. He doesn't change the message. Verse 16. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk their own way. That's the great controversy. God allowed sinners to go their own way. He preaches the three angels' message. He preaches it in the context of the great controversy. We're in the first prophecy seminar in recorded history. Verse 17, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. You want to reach a mind, postmodern mind, you just read the key to it. What happens in this story? They're out in the community healing. They face this disaster. They're in a foreign culture. Paul recognizes what's happening. When they go and get that cow, he recognizes that the human heart is so desperate to worship something that they will worship the first thing that comes along. 
That's the world we live in now. People say it's hard to reach the postmodern mind. No, it's easier than it was a few generations ago. The human heart misses God. The human heart misses God, and people will latch on to the first thing that comes along. If people are so secular, they won't listen to spiritual matters. Somebody brought this up during the break. Why did The Secret by Rhonda Byrne sell millions and millions of copies? Why does, uh, what was his name, Eckhart Tolle, why does he sell millions and millions of books? It's because people are desperate and they'll grab the first thing that comes along. They don't have reason and they don't have God in the postmodern world. They will worship the first thing that comes along. What does Paul do to respond? He preaches the three angels' message. Well, he should have had a postmodern coffee house. That's what he should... No! Preach the three angels' message. He sees what's going on. He knows what message they need to hear because God designed the message and God designed the plan of salvation and God never gets it wrong. Amen. He preaches in the context of the great controversy. That appeals to the postmodern mind. The postmodern mind has gone through a world. They said reason failed us. We still have suffering. The theme of the great controversy shows the world there's a reason for suffering. And that God is in control, and there will be an end to it. It's the answer they're looking for. We don't have to change our... Our message appeals more to this generation than any generation that's ever existed. Amen. Any generation. I, I, I'm not just saying that for textbook's sake. I have gone into some of the most secular cities in America. We just got out of Portland. We had 2,300 people show up and opening. Listen, we, it's the most secular city in America just about. People said it won't work. We put a card in the mail, picture of Jesus and one line. Are you interested in Bible prophecy? People laughed. They said, well, the postmodern mind, secular people will never respond to that. And they're right, they don't, except for the 1,200 people that did respond. <laughs> Why? The human heart's desperate. They know they're missing God. They might not know His name anymore, but they know... Uh, let me continue the class. I'm going to get mad about this. I am so fed up with people saying that our message doesn't work anymore. Amen. If it didn't work, none of us would be here. I asked that in every church. Well, how many of you came into the Adventist church later in life? Well, half the hands go up. Well, it worked for you. You got here somehow. Here's the principle. Paul says to them, God has not left himself without witness. He let you go your own way, but he has not left himself without witness. If you get that principle, you can, you can win a city for Christ. Amen. God gets there first. It's His plan of salvation. He's there before you show up. He gives you the right message to preach. And what happens is this. God speaks to hearts before you arrive. People hear it. They're uneasy. They're wrestling with something. They don't know what it is. All of a sudden, the Adventist shows up with this message and he shares it. And as this person is listening to the Adventist, they go, Aha! The God of that message is the voice that's been speaking to my heart. Do, do you see it? Our job is not to convert people. It's to find those that God is converting. Amen. Completely different mindset. Let me show you. God gets there first. Oh, this is, how many of you have seen this thing that I do at the Taj Mahal? Nobody? Taj Mahal, one of the most beautiful places on earth. I have been so disappointed by tourist attractions all my life, right? Grand Canyon's not half as deep as you think it's going to be. John Wayne doesn't live at the Alamo. I mean, it's just all this stuff. This one is magnificent. Shah Jahan built this in the 1600s. His favorite wife died after giving birth to their 14th child. I know, I just think about that for a moment. I just, 14, I can hardly handle the two. So not only that, I think he had 5,000 wives and I, I can only handle the one. It's my wife that does all the tolerating in our relationship. 
Here's this monument to grief. It's one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. I mean, it's so perfect that the calligraphy on the side, they make it wider as it goes up so that when you stand underneath it, you don't see it getting narrower in the distance. That's remarkable. I mean, this place, you could spend all day there. But the most remarkable thing is not the Taj. The most remarkable thing is this garden just to the south of it, right? This garden here. It's the one you see all the pictures. They're all taken from here, the pictures, and you see the reflection of the Taj Mahal in the water. Now look at this garden. This is not an accident, this garden. In the center is a fountain. It's known as the Fountain of Life. Running from that fountain are four waterways, four of them. Does that ring any bells for Seventh-day Adventists? Garden with four waterways? All right. This is known as a paradise garden. Two words, para and deza, meaning walled garden. The Muslims got the word from the Persians, paradise. The Persians got it from the Greeks. It shows up three times in the New Testament as the place where God dwells, paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus says. All right, well, you know where the comma goes. All right. <laughs> Paradise Garden. The Persians borrowed this idea. I mean, these gardens are everywhere. Go to the Louvre in France. They've got a garden just like this outside. It's all over the world. It's called a Paradise Garden. I actually bought a gardening book. I don't even like gardening, but I bought the gardening book when I saw this. The Persians got the idea from the Assyrians. The Assyrians got it from the ancient Mesopotamians. And where did the ancient Mesopotamians live? In the Fertile Crescent, most likely right where the Garden of Eden was. And one of the most visible spots in Islam on the face of the planet is a memory to the Garden of Eden. You walk through it. There's a tomb, a monument of death on the edge, kind of like, like the sanctuary service at the edge of the Garden of Eden. There's death and a lamb dying there. And there's entrance back into the Garden of Life. There's hope for the garden at the Taj Mahal. This stuff's all over the earth. I got stories like crazy, and we don't have time for any of them. They're good stories, though. I just want you to know what you're missing. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Here it is. God has not left himself without witness, Paul says. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Our brains tell us we're going to die. If you're at all observant, you will notice that your relatives and friends die. And that if the Lord doesn't come one day, you are going to die. Your brain tells you that. It's inevitable. It's guaranteed. I go through the graveyard once in a while and check. Yep, all still dead. Right? It's going to happen to everybody. And if the Lord doesn't come, it's going to happen to you. Your brain tells you it's so. But your heart tells you it's wrong. Your heart tells you it's wrong. Your brain says human existence is finite, and your heart says it's infinite. I don't have enough time in life for everything I want to do. That's what the heart says. I'm a music fanatic. I studied music for years at the conservatory. I just love music. I don't have as much as some of you maybe, but you know, there's like 4,000 songs in my iPod. It would take me two weeks straight to hear them all. Big Rachmaninoff fan. Oh, I love Rachmaninoff. I got two amens on that. I love music. Do you know what's frustrating? In the 40 to 90 years I get on this earth, I can say 40 because I made it, you know, but <laughs> almost. In the time I get, I'm not going to hear it all. That bugs me. There's not enough time to explore the whole planet. God made a big planet, and I don't have enough time in one lifetime to see it. Amen. And my heart says I'm not supposed to die. My heart says it should be longer than this. Our brains are bigger than we have time to experience. 
See, so our, our logic tells us we're going to die, but our heart says that's wrong. And that's true of everybody. Now, except in certain circumstances, who wants to die? The heart has eternity planted in it. God said, go your own way, but I'm going to leave a sense of eternity in your heart, and death is always going to bother you. That's true all over the world. God speaks to people. Leon Thurman was a Russian scientist. If you've never heard of Leon Thurman, you've got to hear this story. He'd been hired by the Russians in the early 1900s to develop a proximity detector. What was it? Well, like the first car alarm, except they wanted it on their boats. He wanted to design something that if you walked near a piece of military equipment and got too close, an alarm would go off. And he's experimenting with different ways to do this. And he comes up with this idea because he's fooling around with radios and he noticed with his radio when he stuck his hand near the antenna it made a noise. You ever notice that with your radio at home? Those of you who don't listen to the internet and still actually have a radio? Right? You get near it and goes, sometimes it goes you know that sound, right? It's not perfect what I did, but it's close. <laughs> right? It makes these, these whistling noises, a radio. And he notices this. He says, well that could be a proximity alarm. It would start whistling if people got too close. So he's thinking about this phenomenon. That's not the remarkable part. What I've noticed what happened is what came out of that. It proves that God still speaks to the human heart and that the image of God is so planted in the human heart we haven't forgotten. Somebody else sits with this thing and puts their hand near it and it's going and he thinks, you know what we could do with this? We could make a musical instrument out of this. Why? If we really came from animals, why would we suddenly be driven to make music out of noise? What evolutionary advantage is there to that? What tribe of monkeys <laughs> decided that they could live longer if they learned to play flutes? There's something in the human heart that's permanent. God put eternity in the human heart. Let's see if I can get this up for you. This is a theremin, the instrument was really popular in the 50s. It's kind of fallen out. They made music out of these radio signals. Let's see if I can get it to go. Wrong mic. Now can you hear it? Can you hear it at all? Net some. Why? <laughs> the image of God is alive in every human heart. Amen. We feel compelled to create. We can't help ourselves. We made an instrument out of a radio. Anyway, I just love this. I bought the whole album. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice all the films back in the... Can you hear me again? Is it on? All the films back in the 50s. Do you remember the music in the background? The really eerie... That was this instrument. Can't hear me anymore? How about now? Yeah. Could you hear the music? Yeah. No? Oh, let's do that again. <laughs> I need the other one. Sorry, your recording's going to be horrible. Ah, there it is. That's somebody waving their hand over a radio antenna. Isn't that cool? Go to iTunes, look up Clara Rockmore. You can still get this album. 
Why? Why would we be compelled to make music out of noise? God's put eternity in the human heart. Amen. It's His plan. He runs it. He left the witness in the world. He left eternity in the human heart. When you show up with the three angels' message, something clicks in the brain of those people. They recognize God. We're not trying to convert people. We're trying to find the converting. God's converting them. We go looking for them. Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I told you, he said the meaning of life is 42, which means nothing. Life doesn't mean anything. He died last year. And all the famous atheists showed up for his funeral. Yeah, I don't know what you say at a funeral like that. There's Doug. He's dead now. Too bad. What else do you say? Do you know what they did? Richard Dawkins. How many of you know who Richard Dawkins is? The guy who wrote The God Delusion. He's trying to convince people to be atheists. He comes to this funeral. He doesn't have much to say, but do you know what they do at the grave of Douglas Adams? At least I've been given to understand. They plant a tree. They don't know what to say, so they plant a tree. Now, don't you think that's an interesting choice? Yes. Why would anybody plant a tree at that grave? Because the brain is telling them at that moment there's something wrong with this, and the heart is telling them something wrong with this, and so they plant a symbol of life on a dead man's grave. Eternity's in the human heart. Think about this carefully. Is there really such a thing as a secular mind? It doesn't exist. You'll find people who argue atheism tooth and nail, and you won't win with them if they're arguing anyway. But they don't really believe it. When it comes to the last 10 seconds of their life and they know it's time for lights out, they don't really believe it. Exactly. The image of God is planted in every heart. And that's why preaching God's Word works. He came up with a plan of salvation. He came up with a distinct message for the last generation. He didn't get it wrong. He set the table and He's already spoken to the human heart. It still works. Amen. And we don't have to retool it. Is everybody with me? Yeah. I mean, really, I could have given the whole seminar in one minute. Don't change. Stick with what God gave us. There's eternity. Oh, I've got all these stories. We don't have time. Some of you have heard me tell these stories. Missionaries around the world could tell you that before they ever get there, well, one story. <laughs> this is the most important one. Many of you have heard of me tell the story of the Karin people. I know if you've been anywhere in a class or seminar I teach, it's my favorite one. A diplomat in the 1790s is going through Burma, and he comes across the Karin people. And the Karin people come running out saying, Aha! Our ancestors told us you'd be coming. You're the one that brings the gift. And he thinks, gift? I didn't know I had to bring a gift. And he's feeling awkward about it. He said, what gift? They said, the book. Tell us you brought us the book of Yahweh. Amen. <laughs> Yahweh is awfully close. He turned to the translator and said, what, what book is this? Good grief. They don't read or write. And what book would... He goes home. He doesn't do anything about it. He makes a note in his journal. It's the only reason we know. In 1816, a Muslim goes for the same place, and they come running out again. You must be the one with the book. He had a book. You know what book it was? It wasn't the Koran. He had a book of common prayer from the Anglican Church. He gave them to him. He says, well, all right, this must be the book. They couldn't read, so they wrapped it up in a basket with ribbons and worshipped it. They appointed a priest and worshipped the book. Another year goes by, and Adoniram Judson, the American missionary, comes to that same neighborhood. 
And he's working with the Buddhist people. Here's the important point. He's translating the scriptures for the Buddhists in that region, and they don't want to listen to him. It's like beating his head against the wall. Nothing's going right. And he sits in his study every day translating, and the whole time he's doing that, the Korean walked past his window once a week to go to the market. And they're singing. If he could understand what they were singing, his hair would stand on end. They're singing, who created the world in the beginning? Yahweh created the world in the beginning. His ways are unsearchable. There you go, a little bit from the top ten of the Korean people in 1817. They sang this, in the beginning God made two people and put them in a garden. The great deceiver came and deceived them. His name was Mukali. When they sinned, they felt naked and ashamed. God used to visit them every seventh day in that garden. Yeah, cool, huh? <laughs> Here's the point. He's trying to work on his own plan with one group of people, and the whole time God set something else up. Develop your own plans. It won't run that well. Look for God's plans, tap into it, and it will go like grease lightning because God knows what He's doing. Amen. John 5.19, Jesus said, I go where my Father is working. I watch for where He's at work, and I go work there. Your job is to go find the converting. Keep your ears and eyes open, and you'll start seeing where God is speaking to people. You'll have to be a bit of a detective, but you can find it. And when you find that, you will find things go much better. You tap into God's plan. Don't make one up of your own. When we think we have to convert those that don't want to be converted, we've missed the point. When we think we have to put on a coffee house that appeals to a secular mind with a secular subject, we've missed the point. We can't convert secular people. Right, let me prove that to you. Let me prove that to you. Let me all these stories. i got hours and hours of stories. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one, too. That's excellent. Every meeting I've gone to, by the way, I've, every campaign I've held, I've discovered I am not the first contact those people had. Somehow they heard the truth before they ever got to me. Maybe only parts of it, but somehow that happens. How? God's plan of salvation. Our job is not to convert people. It's to help those people connect the dots. Amen. And that may, doesn't that make it easier? Yes. Amen. Uh, a book written some time ago. This guy should be an Adventist, too. What's his name now? I can't remember his name. Blackaby. Yeah, everybody goes, oh, yeah, Blackaby. He, he talked about some kids trying to open up a college ministry cam on campus. And, 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 and they tried to get it started by twisting people's arms to come. And they got four or five people to come. And then they read John 5.19 where it's, Jesus said, I go where my father's working and concentrate there. And he said, well, you know what we ought to do? Let's walk around campus and just talk to people and eavesdrop on their conversations. And when you hear people turn to spiritual themes, that's who God is speaking to. Invite them. Amen. Their college campus club went from three to 300 people overnight. Amen. You following what I'm saying? The secret to winning the postmodern mind is to recognize there's eternity in the heart. You just have to figure out where they've been listening to God. They might not know it's God. They might not define it as God, but He's speaking to them. And if you can figure that out, you're going to win them. How do you work with the principle? Here's how you don't work with the principle. New York Times. I think I read this at ASI. It still boggles my mind. October of last year. I think I read this at the ASI convention this year. I did? All right. Headline, October 7, 2007. You sh thou shalt not kill, said the New York Times, except in a popular video game at church. People saying, okay, we can't preach the word, so if we have a video game night, we can get everybody in the door, and then we'll fool them into believing in God. Right. Here's the article. First, oh, this bothers me still. First, the percussive sounds of sniper fire and the thrill of the kill. Then the gospel of peace. 
Across the country, hundreds of ministers and pastors desperate to reach young congregants have drawn concern and criticism through their use of an unusual recruiting tool, the immersive and violent video game Halo. The latest, you guys have grown really well. It's just a, oh. The latest iteration of the immensely popular space epic Halo 3 was released two weeks ago by Microsoft, has already passed 300 million in sales. So the church says, oh, that's popular, let's use that. Those buying it must be 17, given it's rated M for mature audiences. But that's not prevented leaders at churches and youth centers across Protestant denominations, including evangelical churches that have cautioned against violent entertainment from holding heavily attended Halo nights and stocking their centers with multiple game consoles so dozens of teenagers can flock around big screen TVs and shoot it out. The Alliance of Popular Culture and Evangelism is challenging churches much as bingo games did in the 1960s. And the question fits into a rich debate about how far churches should go to reach young people. Now, that's the New York Times writing that. One of the most secular papers in the nation. I want you to pay attention. I think I may have thrown the point in the slides last night. Where'd my remote go? Let's see if I got it. I did. A secular newspaper sees a problem in the church. They say they preach one thing and they live another. Now think about this. If it's really true in today's world that what's true for me is not necessarily true for you and everybody can develop their own morality, why would this bother a secular paper? How can they say it's wrong? They're calling something wrong in a Christian church. Christians are missing the point, and secular people are saying, this is wrong. Don't tell me that this generation can't tell the difference between right and wrong. Amen. See, God put eternity in their hearts. They look at this, and instinctively, God whispers in their ear, that's wrong. And they hear it. They don't even know it's God, but they heard it. They heard the Spirit of God. And it's the church is busy trying to win people with Halo games. Are you following what I'm saying? It won't even work. What's the problem with the approach? You cannot win the secular mind. How do I know? Can't happen. 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. What have we received? Spirit of God. Here comes the big part in verse 13. These things we also speak, Paul says, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Paul says, we could use man's wisdom to present truth, but we're not going to do that. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Paul says, I have a choice. I can present secular themes or spiritual themes, and I'm going with spiritual themes. Why? But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. We cannot win the secular mind. How do I know that? Bible says so. Can't be done. Well, pastor, you just shut down. Everybody's secular. We may as well all go home. They're not secular. Truly secular people can't be one, but God has promised He hasn't left Himself without witness, and there's eternity in the human heart. Focus on what is winnable now. Not everybody's ripe. We're trying to pick what's not ripe. Let me see. Look at the disciples' method of working, desire of ages. The apostles were members of the family of Jesus, and they accompanied Him as He traveled on foot through Galilee. They had shared with Him in the toils and hardship... Oh, 
hardships that overtook them. They had listened to his discourses. They had walked and talked with the Son of God. And from his daily instruction, they had learned how to work for the elevation of humanity. As Jesus ministered to the vast multitudes that gathered about him, his disciples were in attendance, eager to do his bidding and lighten his labor. They recognized Jesus is in charge and they're helping. Okay? They assisted in arranging the people, bringing the afflicted ones to the Savior, and promoting the comfort of all. Important principle. They're, make, they're being good hosts. Now listen to this. They watched for what? Interested hearers. Explain the scriptures to them. What were they looking for? Interested hearers. We've got it backwards now. We think we have to make hearers interested. When God told us, I'm in charge, I'm running the show, don't go until Jesus is in that sanctuary and the Holy Spirit falls because you need my power to do this. I'll run the whole plan of salvation. You go out there and find who's interested because I got them interested and you can't. Are you with me? You're not going to, people say, but you're going to run out of people who are interested. There's 7 billion people on this planet. I promise you, you're not going to run out of who's interested. Somebody right now is waving their hand over a radio, making music, and they're wondering why. I'm telling you. Right? Some really good questions. Who did Peter win on the day of Pentecost? Who was his audience? Acts 2 verse 5 says, devout men from every nation under heaven. Who was baptized that day? The Bible says they were devout. They were already interested in spiritual things. Following me? Who did Philip win at Gaza? Spirit moves him into the desert. There's an Ethiopian in the chariot. What is the Ethiopian doing? He's reading the book of Isaiah and he doesn't get it. I never forget one of my favorite stories. I was knocking on doors, doing surveys in the community. And I was fed up because it was a bad day and it didn't work. It was just horrible. Everybody's slamming the door in my face. And I'll be honest, I don't like knocking on doors. I don't enjoy it at all. But I do it. You know why? It works. <laughs> That's why I do it. God didn't ask us to do what we enjoy. He asked us to do what's right. So I go out, and what a bad day. I was fed up, and I was in a bad mood. Happens all the time. And I'm kicking the dirt. Church member said, well, let's try one more house. I said, no. I'm going home. Oh, come on, pastor, one more house. If they say, if they say pastor, it's bad. Then you have to go. I mean, I just I, I felt this big. All right. But this is the last one. Knocked on the door. Hi, I'm Sean from It Is Written. She started crying, which I'm used to because, you know, when I introduce myself to women in college, that's usually what they did. <laughs> she starts crying, and she says, how do you know? How do I know what? She had us follow her into the house. I've told this story a thousand times, I'll bet. But I learned a lesson that day. On her coffee table is a Bible. It's open. And the pages are all wrinkled because they've been wet. She said, I've been reading that book all night, and I've been crying because I don't understand it. And in the middle of the night, I asked God to send somebody to my house to help me. I'm not going to run out of people that are interested, folks. The statistics tell you you can't win her. Statistics tell me, oh, she's under 55 and she's postmodern and can't be won. 
baloney. Amen. Veggie baloney. <laughs> I'm telling you, the people who say stuff like that haven't been out there meeting people and winning souls, period. I read the studies all the time. I, I, I don't have my head in the sand. I read the studies. Oh, the emerging church, and we can't win this, and we can't win that. And Yeah, I know. Can't win this, can't win that. Gideon couldn't take down the Midianites with 300 people either. We're missing the point. It's God's plan, and he gives us power for it. He says it works, and I'll go with that. Amen. All right. We're preaching the choir here. Well, it's not everywhere that message is popular. But I'll tell you what. I've never found anything that you can win people with outside of the Bible. No, give me, give me 30 hours of presenting my own philosophy. That crowd going to stay? No, I'm not going to make it six minutes, man. I, they don't want to hear that. They're looking for who's been speaking to their heart. They don't know who it is, and they're hoping that this time at this seminar, at this Bible study, they'll find it. And we owe it to them to give, it to them, give them what God expects us to give them. Who did Peter win among the Gentiles first? Acts chapter 10, his name was Cornelius. Verse 1 says he was a devout man. He was already giving money to the church. Interesting. We are never the first contact people have. There's eternity in the human heart. God gets to them first. We do not convert people. We find the converting. What a world of difference. If you have limited time and resources, then you go after what you find is you look for the interested hearers. And you won't run out of those. There's a lot of them. A lot of them. All right. Oh, here it is. Oh, 15 minutes. Let me read you a couple of highlights. Page 136, Gospel Workers. We're now going to have a reading. Ready? All those awake? Amen. Nod your head. All right. Is this making sense? Yes. This is the most powerful chapter I know of for developing a plan for soul winning. Gospel Workers, page 136. There's nothing like it in my ministry. In a dream given me September 29, 1886, I was walking with a large company who were looking for berries. There were many young men and women in the company who were helping in gathering the fruit. Let me think. I think I've got this outlined here. God's plan calls for many people hunting. Why? Because there's lots of interested people out there and one or two preachers can't get it done. Okay? A large company looking for berries. A large wagon laden with provisions for our company went before us. Soon the wagon halted and the party scattered in every direction to look for fruit. All around the wagon were both high and low bushes bearing large, beautiful hortleberries. I haven't got a clue. When I get to heaven, I want to ask Sister White what a hortleberry is. <laughs> the company were all looking too far away to see them. That's not to our subject today, but that's important. We go looking way too far away. The, the ripest berries live right next door to you. I began to gather the fruit nearby, but very carefully for fear of picking the green berries. You know what a video game night is? You're trying to pick unripe fruit. Don't pick unripe fruit. They picked carefully for fear of picking green berries, which were so mingled with the ripe fruit, I could only pick one or two berries from a cluster. Some of the nice large berries had fallen to the ground. Some of the fruit's overripe. We didn't get there in time. Now it tells me there's a window of opportunity. And what we need to focus in on are the interested hearers, those that are living in the window of opportunity. They're ripe but not overripe. 
not going to run out of those. And when you're done picking all those, the unripe ones will have ripened and you can start again. Some people say, oh, we had a meeting and we only baptized three people in our town. Yeah, this time. But the, all the unripe ones are ripe now, so do it again. Amen. You can't run it. People say, we can't hold a meeting in our town any more than once every three years because then you burn the territory. No, you don't. Amen. What was ripe this month? What was unripe this month, sorry, becomes ripe next month. You won't run out. I promise you. God's good at what He does. Amen. And the angels of heaven are waiting for us to catch up. Oh, here. We have looked everywhere, can find no fruit, someone says. They looked in astonishment at the quantity I had. There are more to be gathered from these bushes. What's Ellen White saying? There's more than you think out there. When we run studies saying how it can't be done, angels are wringing their hands in anguish saying, but there's more out there than you think. They began picking, but soon stopped saying, it's not fair for us to pick here. You found this spot. The fruit is yours. But I replied, that makes no difference. Gather what you can. This is God's field. These are His berries, and it's your privilege to pick them. The plan of salvation belongs to Him. He runs it. He thought it up. He puts eternity in the heart. He ripens the berries. And all you're being asked to do is go pick them. Amen. It doesn't mean you don't have to work for it. I seem to be a little bit further on. Some people want a break, she says. Oh, but these people want to take a break. You have brought in nothing. You're eating up all our supplies without giving us any more. I can't eat now and stop. There's too much fruit to be picked. You did not find it because you didn't look close enough. It does not hang on the outside of the bushes. You've got to search for it. All right. It's not always obvious who's ready. You've got to go find them. That's the fun of the job God gave us. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a detective? That's fun. God says, there's the city. i got ripe berries. Go find them. That's fun. <laughs> People say to me, I don't want to do evangelism. I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's so scary. If you knew exactly how it was going to work every time, that wouldn't be fun, would it? Amen. What's fun is not knowing Amen. and having God do more than you expected. Amen. Oh, the fruit is nearby, she says three times in this chapter. I'm going to run out of time. Oh, this is a good one. These are high bush berries, she says, firm and good. We did not think we could find anything on the high bushes, so we hunted low bush berries only and only found a few. If you rule out certain types of people, secular, wealthy, you miss a huge part of the harvest. This is why I don't do niche evangelism. Our target is sinners. And there are sinners among the wealthy and the poor. There are sinners among the secular and the unsecular. That's not even a word, but you know what I mean. Don't rule anybody out. You don't know who God's been speaking to. And there's a bunch more here. I want you to read that chapter. 136 gospel workers. It gets down to this. God expects us to find what He's ripening. And we need a new mental frame of reference. Everybody's talking about a paradigm shift. You know where the paradigm shift needs to happen? In our hearts and minds. That's where it needs to happen. People talk about seeker services like the world is going to seek their way through the doors of the church, but God has a seeker plan that's a little bit different. He calls you the seeker. Go out there and seek them. They're ripening. Go get them. Are you with me? Amen. We're not trying to make hearers interested. We're looking for interested hearers. This is why I'm the biggest snoop in the world. You will never have me in your house after this. <laughs> Ever. When I get into your house, I look at everything. I do. I help myself. 
It's amazing what you get away with if you smile. I get into your house, first thing I head for is your bookshelf. First thing. I walk in here, even if there's two books on there, I always say the same thing. I walk over the bookshelf, oh, you're quite a reader. You know, something like that. Some excuse to go over there and look. Why? A person's bookshelf is a map of their brain. I know how you think if I can spend five minutes with your bookshelf. If I find 20 books on communicating with the dearly departed on your bookshelf, you know what I know? First of all, I know death really bothers you. Second of all, I know where we need to head with a Bible study. It's obvious to me that the image of God is not... See, I don't worry about people who get agitated or disagree. Because it's obvious to me anybody who gets agitated or disagrees still has the Spirit of God speaking to them and they're coming under conviction. I worry about people who don't care. So people argue and object. That's good news. <laughs> they come to me with bags under their eyes. I didn't sleep all night after I thought about what you said. That's great. <laughs> That's a ripening berry. Rotten berries don't lose sleep. I don't think that would look right in a textbook. We just need to develop the thought more. <laughs> right? Using God's plan. Oh, what time is it? We got time. Let's summarize. Understand God gets there first. Call him postmodern, call him whatever. God got there first and he speaks to him. Okay? You need to be a detective. Ask questions, get close to them. This is why you can't win people you're not friends with. You'll figure out how God's speaking to them. You will. God will show you if you're in prayer. Use God's approach to the mind. It works best. Can't win the secular mind. Stick with the plan God developed before the foundation of the world. Can't go wrong. God comes up with a plan, I'm sticking with it. It's been working for me for the last 16 years. And it's never proven wrong yet. Use God's subject order. People raise their eyebrows somehow. You mean God has a subject order? Order? Yeah, He does. Not only given us the message, the three angels' message and the work to do, He not only provides the interest, He tells us exactly what to tell them. Exactly. Right? Ellen White, page 358, Early Writings. I was shown three steps. The first, second, and third angels' messages. Said my accompanying angel, Woe to him who shall move a block or stir a pin of these messages. The true understanding of these messages is of vital importance. The destiny of souls hangs upon the manner in which they are received. There is an order of subjects that God recommends. I was again brought down through these messages and saw how dearly the people of God had purchased their experience. It had been obtained through much suffering and severe conflict. God had led them along step by step. Who, who did the leading? God. His plan until He had placed them upon a solid, immovable platform. When this movement was born, we didn't guess at the message. We didn't guess at the method. God did it. And He's still in the business of doing it. And Ellen White says, God led us through a certain progression of truth as this movement was born. And that produced people who were standing on a solid, immovable platform. Everybody with me? This is important. Early Writings 256. 
Many who embraced the third message had not an experience in the two former messages. Now she looks at people that didn't come into the message in this early part of this movement in the right order. Satan understood this and his evil eye was on them to overthrow them. But the third angel was pointing them to the most holy place and to those who had an experience in the past messages were pointing them to the heavenly sanctuary. Let me continue for the sake of time. 256 early writings. Here's what she says. God brought this movement through a certain order of subjects and showed us truth in a certain progression and it made us solid and immovable. Those who came in late, Satan took advantage of them because they didn't have the same solid platform. What does that tell us? It tells us that God has a recommended method for the message. There is a recommended subject order. The best and perfect subject order is the one God chose as He raised up this movement. It produces solid converts. What order is that? It's so simple. I mean, we started with William Miller. What did William Miller preach? Second coming of Christ. Is it an accident that Adventist evangelistic meetings start with the second coming? Daniel 2, Matthew 24. We didn't guess at that. We were told to do that. Starts with the second coming. Then, after the disappointment, what's the next thing we learned? 1844 pointed us to the heavenly sanctuary, right? It's the next thing we learned. So we have the second coming, the sanctuary. Then, inside the sanctuary, we saw the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. And in the center, in the heart of those commandments, the Sabbath. That's the order we learn this stuff in. Repeat that order, and your work will go better. I promise you. Revelation 14, 6, Mark of the Beast, State of the Dead, and so on. I'm going to move along. Generally speaking, open your Bible. You start with the Second Coming, then go to the Three Angels' Message. It's remarkable. Here's the order I follow when I'm working with people. Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them. So I start with several nights of the second coming. Okay. Then I preach a gospel message, having the everlasting gospel to preach. I invite people to accept Christ. Verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Next subject I cover... The heavenly sanctuary and the judgment. I follow the order given in Revelation 14. Yes, nobody wants to hear about the sanctuary in this day and age. You know the only people don't want to hear about it? Disgruntled Adventists. I have never, not even once, had an interest get up and go because they didn't find, like the sanctuary, find it offensive. Not once. Matter of fact, they're on the edge of their seat. Why? Because all of a sudden in a world that says there's no meaning to our existence, they see meaning. And they cling to it. They worship the first thing that comes along that makes sense. The hour of His judgment. Worship Him that made is the next thing. So you go on to the law on the Sabbath. You follow me? Then there another angel followed. Babylon has fallen. I don't, I don't bring the beast out of my pocket until after I've covered the Sabbath. I follow the order God gave us. If you follow God's order, it appeals to the mind. Let me show you to the, this to you. Okay. What do we know about the postmodern mind? They do not believe in absolute truth. And we're going to wrap it up now. They don't believe in absolute truth. They don't believe there's meaning to life. To the postmodern mind, relationships are all important. And to the postmodern mind, they like stories. More than arguments, as a matter of fact. Now go back and see what Jesus anticipated. How did he do most of his preaching? Parables. Parables. That makes sense to the postmodern mind. They like those. They like dialogue. 
Instead of us running away scared saying, we can't reach these people, it's time for us to realize that we are the only people who can. Amen. Amen. Really? We're set up for it. Awesome. We're ready to roll. Amen. We're ready to roll. Here's how the... Oh, I don't have time for this. I love this diagram. It's why I put it in. It has nothing to do with the subject, really. <laughs> ah, it does. Let me show this to you. Here's the one thing you should remember. Can I run five minutes late? Yes. Yes. That's four fingers, but I mean five. Right? If you know how people think, that's half the battle. We just talked about how they think. No meaning to life, yada, yada, yada. You come along with a new idea. In their world, everything is a blue triangle, and in your world, everything's a red circle. And you're trying to preach to Mikey here, and you say, Mikey, red circle, red circle, red circle. And what does Mikey say? And that can't be true, because the whole world's blue triangles. And so he rejects the new idea. What you have to do is to take truth and put it in language you understand. So how would I teach Mikey red circles? Really easy. I'd teach him about blue circles and then I'd teach him about red triangles. He'd look at the blue circle and say, all right, that's new, but at least it's blue. <laughs> and he considers it. Then he gets blue, so I work on red triangles. And he says, all right, it's red, but at least it's a triangle. You following me? That's the big secret. Find out where they are and start couching the truth in terms they get. But don't give up on the truth. Amen. That's where we've blown it. People are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They say, we don't know how to reach these people, so let's get rid of the message, try something else. What a big mistake. What a big mistake. Don't forget this. Just because postmoderns are despondent and think there's no truth, and they don't see meaning in life, it doesn't mean they like that. And we say, oh, we can't reach them because they're secular and they don't believe in meaning in life. And so we see them, they're happy there. They're not happy there. And they can't be happy there because God put eternity in their heart. They know there's something else. Why would we give up on people just because they think differently? Right? We should be careful. I mean, I've got to back up. I can't read it that close. We should take careful note of how perfect the three angels' messages are suited to a postmodern mind. It's perfect. God didn't get it wrong. Our message will win them. Here's what we do. Take a look at this. I'm only going to do a few of these and then I'll let you go. On my opening night, you know, there's some people I have to start with, does God exist? And I just ask them questions until they realize a godless world doesn't make sense either and I can get them to a meeting. Just ask them, you know, ask them questions. Well, how do you know this for sure? How do you know that for sure? Get them there. New World Order, Daniel 2. Here we have a whole world that says there is no meaning to life, no purpose for my existence, nobody's in control, nothing means anything. Then you pull out Daniel 2 and you show them the whole plan of world history was prophesied in advance. It's never been wrong. Somebody's in charge and history's headed somewhere. What does that tell somebody who doesn't believe in meaning? I'm wrong. Thank goodness. That's what they're thinking. Oh, that makes uh, They're relieved. <coughs> Planet upheaval, all the sin and suffering. Go through Matthew chapter 24, the world's falling apart. And everybody says, yeah, we kind of noticed it's falling apart. But thank goodness, God has a plan. He's going to fix it. It makes sense. It works for these people. I cover Armageddon on the third night. That's fun. Believe me. Let me just state this too. Sometimes we think we're going to win the world with a musical concert or a play. We will never be good, as good at putting on plays as Hollywood and Broadway. And we will never put on a concert like Van Halen. Not that you'd want to, but you know. 
You're not going to draw a crowd for a musical concert like Van Halen would or whoever's playing now. Although Van Halen's back together, it's like the geriatric tour. They're out there going around again. <laughs> but there's one thing we have that the rest of the world doesn't have, and he gave it to the remnant movement, and that's the three angels' messages. Amen. He didn't goof up. It's the right message for the right generation. And you won't lose. All right, it goes on for a little while. I go through, I was going to go through every subject with you one by one, and that would take us another two hours. So, are you getting it down? <laughs> Look, I'm pointing this at the screen like it matters, and the computer's over there. <laughs> That's how I grew up watching TV. Somebody got it, right? It's like, the, I'm the wrong generation. It's like, and if, that, if it doesn't work right, you kind of throw it at the screen, right? Have you ever done that? How many of you wiggle your mouse when something's not loading fast enough? Uh, that really helps, too. I'm out of time. Did this make sense to you? Yes. Any questions? Yeah. There are no notes. Do you know why? Because I put the slides together like yesterday and the day before. I'm sorry. We should make notes and maybe get them available for you or something. Yeah, we should probably do that. I'll do that in my spare time. Oh. Oh, a handout. You know what? I'll make some kind of an outline of this. It may take me a few weeks, but in January I'll post it and put a link at the GYC website or something if they'll let me and, and we'll do that. Okay, I'll work on that. No guarantees. But, but, but. I mean, if you remember nothing else, it's this. God gets there first. Go look for where he got there and you'll win. All right. Last question. Yeah. Ah. Read through Acts 14 again. God let everybody go their own way. He's not going to force anybody into the kingdom of heaven. People rebel. They have sinful hearts. But God leaves just enough in their hearts so they can find their way back home. He doesn't force them, but it's there. It's there. Acts 14. Read the story. It's 15, 16, and 17, those verses. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the fact that you've called us. It's humbling. We really don't know what to do, but we take heart in the fact that you've got a plan, and if we show up to what you're doing, we'll see things happen because you did it. Amen. Father, bless us, we ask. Give us the courage to go now and figure out what you've been saying to the people around us. We give ourselves into your hand and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.